keep going. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. You're in for an amazing ride. This week on the Keep Going podcast, we're joined by Paul Carosa, the godfather of Austin running. In our No Direction Home episode a few weeks ago, episode 11 for reference, we mentioned how one of the three pillars holding up the foundations of Austin running was the mercurial and magical energy bottled up in Runtex, the original local running shoe store that Paul and his wife Sheila owned and operated between 1988 and 2013. In its 25-year run, it fundamentally changed the city, not just the running scene. On any given day, you might bump into governors. At least three Texas governors, Ann Richards, George Bush, and Rick Perry were consistent drop-ins. Tech millionaires, Michael Dell trained with Carrozza and was a close friend. Musical celebrities, Willie Nelson and Jerry Jeff Walker, were New Balance junkies and spent time on the Runtex floor. But in addition, also all the rest of the wild and weird scene that made up Austin made it such a vibrant and exciting place in the 90s and the aughts. Those halcyon days are hinted at in this episode, where we unpack where Paul started, how he made his way to Austin, and the early days of Runtex, where every employee was trained in the trifecta of shoe sales, event production, and coaching. Two of your hosts worked in this melting pot of creativity, inspiration, and hard work, and we bring an insider's vibe to this conversation. Stories abound. This is the first in a series of episodes we have planned with Paul, as there's simply too much history to cover in just an hour. So in honor of 1985, the year Paul and Sheila moved to Austin, as well as the year Starship released their international smash hit, We Built This City, we bring you the episode we call, He Built This City, Paul Carosa, the godfather of Austin running. Godspeed, my friends. Godspeed. Well, I guess we can get this. We should get started at some point in time. We're going to have to figure out how to kick this damn thing off because I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do. You're it, always but. the talent with that, Steve. <laughs> Just hit play and we'll freestyle. Well, don't worry. We've been on play for a while, so oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't miss nuggets. anything. I don't yeah. miss anything. Um, well, I guess ultimately, you guys, the, the folks that are listening to us, you guys are in for a real treat because. Um, we don't usually do intros, Paul. Usually we just start off with snorting and cursing mm. and whatever happens to be the little bit of conversation we have, snippet we have that we get started with. But since we've got a guest with us today, we are really, really thankful and grateful that you're here because we talked about this a couple weeks ago in an episode where we were thinking a little bit about what running culture is and we were kind of discussing Austin's unique run culture. And of course, your name comes up 75 times in that episode because of you being the, the God, as I said, the godfather of the community. So thank you for coming and talking with us. We're not really entirely sure where this conversation will go because you've got three um, guys who like to ramble and then you also are a, a, a shoot from the hip kind of talker. Yep. But ultimately, I guess the main things that would be really cool to kind of start working through just so we've got a kind of a big picture is... Like what we just were talking a little bit about what the difference between well just how different the culture is and how different things are, but maybe we can get started. We can talk a little bit about what Austin's running culture was like when you got here. 
Yeah. Um, because, you know, you I think you came down for Texas Relays a couple times and that was sort of your first. Go on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Like yeah. what your experience. I'll be doing an intro sure. for you. That's much yeah. more fancy. But um, it's just weird to do all that stuff on. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't need to hear that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, you know, my uh, Sheila and I both came from Paradise, California, which was before it burned down a few years ago, was a lush pine filled mountain kind of a hilly not the foothills of the sierra nevada so coming from uh paradise california to abilene was like landing on the moon with a, with a dust storm but loved abilene people and loved being there it was like a great experience but coming to texas relays after while living in abilene was like kind of like getting back to northern california in texas so there was just we absolutely i got right after texas relays which I just happened we went back and I just started, now that I realized it was a statesman, was in the Abilene Christian Library, just started looking at jobs in Austin. Um, and there was a swim coaching job at Travis Country, um, the neighborhood. So we got the job, moved to town for that and never left. <laughs> when but, was that? 85, May and 85. And was this, what part of your life were you in? At uh, that just graduated too? from college. Awesome. So I was 21, 22, something like that. Oh, cool. And you'd yeah. studied pre-med or something yeah, I was, right i was planning to go to medical school i'm still thinking about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um you know maybe we practice more medicine than we know we have as run text but oh, as yeah. health health goes but so anyway we get here and um just kind of blown away about being going down to town lake and like literally it was like a ghost town um in the sense that there's this beautiful downtown trail i mean austin was what three hundred thousand people at the time um so there weren't as many people that could be here, could be on the trail, but it was just this beautiful downtown trail that um, kind of like we'd grown up in Northern California and it just fell in love with it. And, you know, remember I was a huge fan of uh, the Fifth Avenue Mile in New York. So obviously first time I had stood at the Capitol steps and looked down Congress Avenue, I was like, that's our mile, the Congress Avenue Mile. So that happened a few years later, but you know, Austin had the makings of a great running community and, um, it, not that it didn't have a good running community, but it, it was kind of quiet because Austin was quiet. Yeah, the uh, we talked about the, the the three pillars of the Austin running community in the early '90s when it first started. When I when I think of that's when I got here. Well, I got here in '88, but it really was University of Texas's campus and the student body, and then the athletes that were there because there were always great athletes there. Yeah. And then you had Town Lake itself, which was just a magnet at that time. They were still, you know tons of people running around town like mm -hmm. but it was missing a running store or some kind of fixture there was a runtex there and when i as i remember you guys bought it in 88 or so yep. was that it you bought runtex in 1988 and you bought it and it was at that corner of 12th well tucked in there at 12th and yeah, more behind the tavern behind as we the, would say a thousand times <laughs> behind <laughs> the tavern 12th and more behind the tavern <laughs> yeah and that, that that same tavern that's yeah, yeah, yeah. over there the right same now one? so yep. behind it there's that little cluster of buildings I think correct there's a yeah. skateboard yeah. shop in there right now yeah. no that's i think no complies up the street there might be a skateboard okay, shop in there cool, but cool. yeah yeah but that's you when tell us about how what what made you decide that that's the direction because you were already yeah it was you're already in the fitness industry. You were already out at Barton Creek Country Club, right? Doing you, you positioned to sort of being a mover and shaker within the within the sports or fitness community in a way, right? And then yeah. that you, what made you guys decide to buy a running shoe store? Is that something you'd always um, thought of, or no? I think I mean running like the whole thing about training, like the the whole run tech scene was about events, training, and gear. 
And so as long as I can remember, that was what my life was focused on was, you know, running events and then starting to produce them. And then, uh, you know, the gear you wear was always just super aware of the gear, you know, being growing up when Nike was just starting and ASICS was the brand. And I think there were some Brooks around and Adidas. And, you know, I remember so gear was always a big deal um, to me. Just, I was always really aware of shoes. And then uh, the whole idea of uh, training, like training for stuff specifically was always like, you know, I was very specific even as a kid and like whatever I was going to, whether it was basketball or running or whatever, I was always getting in football, always getting games together with kids and organizing that we are going to play. And it was like a real game or real race or, yeah. So I was just what I was just my whole life. So I thought, you know, um, my dad was in education. My mom was in medicine and I just had the aptitude to become a doctor. And I thought that's what I was going to do. And it just kept getting delayed because run techs happened, but we got here in 85 and, um, just needed to work because we were trying to really, what we wanted to do is be a professional athlete (laughs) and figure out how to pay for that. And so run techs kind of filled that void of, you know, I I started doing the math on what it costs to put on a race here versus fly somewhere about get hotel room, rent car and have a race there. So I remember going to Stan Huntsman UT and we started the run techs invite. It was actually cheaper for me to sponsor that than it was to fly to a meet in california <laughs> so we and just, it was a kick-ass meet it was too. a great meet yeah and we, first week of may yeah. after the st- after the state meet usually right after the state meet right yeah. or i think so yeah, it was, yeah something like that and we i think personality wise was always very inclusive so we even back in college in california was at the jc we had formed a multi-generational training group within the college team wow and so and i always ended up like I had specific coaches that told us the workouts, but we always kind of supplemented and complemented. And then eventually by the time it got to use, I went to UC Irvine after Butte and they tried to, you know, I was a 30, 30 mile, 30 mile a week guy at Butte running well, you know, and then, and I was a sprinter who became a middle distance runner. So it was always a struggle for me. But um, when my training was right, I could race well, but when I overtrained, I didn't like put on weight. And so I, so I had to figure out how to train differently, become a middle distance runner with asthma and a sprinter, right? So that, that methodology that I kind of, I, when I went to UC Irvine, they threw me in with the 15 5K guys and I just put on weight and got slower. And about three weeks before PC2As, which was the conference out there, the head coach calls me in and he's like, kind of like, who are you? We saw this guy that we recruited, but we don't know who you are. And I'm like, well, just let me do my own thing for three weeks. I think I was running three, you know, I came in like 351 guy and I, I was running 354 struggling. I remember seeing in my uniform was like, looked like spandex before spandex. <laughs> and so I just said, let me do my own thing. So I went back to my routines and ran 348 at conference, scored for him and then transferred. Cause yeah. you know, I, if I was, I just didn't want to be part of a, a coach that, and we're, you know, Vince Boy is a great coach, but I was in the wrong pro, wrong, wrong part of his program. I always had this itch to get to Abilene Christian. I was raised Church of Christ, and there was just something about, like, I couldn't, I would lose sleep over the fact that I went, needed to go to Abilene. So mm. there was something calling me out here. So transferred here. Sheila went to BYU while I was at Irvine. <clears throat> and then, uh, so as we kind of got through that and got to Austin, it was just felt like home immediately. And we started just doing what we do, which is I, was, I would get with the reps from Adidas and get their salesman samples. So I mean, we were babysitting kids. We lived with families, and 
I was out at Barton Creek Country Club. I was the athletic director of the Metropolitan Club. So I was also always multi-site, multi-project, just kind of over-committing myself cons consistently. And you get to a point yeah. of inefficiency, and then you got to sort of clear the deck a little bit and yep. hone mm -hmm. in, and then you mm -hmm. build yourself back up. And so I've had that pattern as well. Um, <clears throat> so we just end up being everywhere. And so you meet the core. It was like we were in Austin at its formative years. You know, the, you know, the, future president of the United States comes in the store with this house of representatives from West Texas named Rick Perry. And next thing you know, their governor's presidents. Yeah. And so Michael Dells and, you know, you end up being kind of the go-to in the running scene. In uh, <laughs> the, from those, understand. yeah. So, <laughs> so he, but it was because of what we were doing was so authentic to the three pillars right. of, we didn't just run, we ran f towards events that we wanted to have, we had goals at. And we didn't just wear any shoes. We wanted to wear the right shoes. And then the shoe company started, we became kind of a high volume running store. And they started, you know, I, we, I just wanted to like help them make the shoes better because I wanted them better. And I couldn't, I didn't make, I made handmade shoes, but I did all this tinkering. And uh, then we became friends with, uh, actually the first race we ever put on was the Congress 70 Mile, which was just like, you know, one of these life changing events. Um, Luckily, my parents were alive at the time and uh, willing to bail me out of my commitments. <laughs> I, uh, so we got, I don't even know, like, I remember the city council people that were there, the mayor, we went in, I'm like, can we, you know, they made, it just happened. So Congress Avenue Mile, and then I'm like calling up Steve Scott and Sidney Murray and yeah. Doug Padilla and all these people that I was like dreaming of being as a runner and offered them each like five grand to show up. Because I was just sure Michael Dell, who I was coaching at the time, was gonna <laughs> would care about this as much as I did yeah. and underwrite this thing. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I made all my commitments and got zero support from the, anybody financially. And uh, I remember having a thirty thousand dollar call to my parents. And like <sighs> always starts with um, mom, <laughs> <laughs> not um, dad, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like I always and say, so they on the phone yeah. going, "Who's picking me up at the airport?" Yeah. So <laughs> they fought for a while and ended up coughing it up bailed me out of that but by putting on that race i got the golden shoe award for runner's world magazine for the best race of the year mm. yeah that's cool yeah so yeah. like first race ever out of the box our best ever it always it's like downhill for 30 years after that <laughs> <laughs> and i'm kidding but um so we had this great event and we just and again being inclusive we didn't just have the elite heat we had everything built up to it from the yeah. every 10 years or whatever that was just really cool event and we had packet pickup at Runtex and so that we just created our mo model just because when you went to a track meet, right, you had to pick up your packet. Mm -hmm. And so we, where'd you pick your packet? At the stadium. Well, it was super simple. We pick it up at Runtex because that's where we that's are. That's where and, we are. Yeah. And then pretty soon all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, we just had the best day ever in sales. So it was just happened organically. And then, uh, so that happened. And then I had a very early, we had this North store up in, um, we were in Gateway, but before that we were in the North Hills Center that was um, farther up Jollyville. And uh, I had no idea business-wise what I was doing other than signing things and ordering <laughs> stuff <laughs> and placing people there to watch the store. Yeah. And uh, we had this Runtex-to-Runtex -to -run route. We would just run from Runtex-to-Runtex -run and we'd end up coming through down Mesa and uh, turn left on North Hills, right on Balconies. Uh, left on Perry Lane, right on Bull Creek, mm -hmm. left, right on Jefferson, left on 29th of Lamar, down into Rentex at 12th Lamar, which, the, so we, we, 
put on this Runtex Half Marathon, which we brought in uh, Henry Rono, Frank Shorter, and Bill Rogers. I, I think it was the only time in history they all raced. <laughs> yeah. And uh, paid them five grand. I had a thing of the five grand. I like, love writing $5,000 <laughs> checks. <laughs> Nice round number. Yeah. <laughs> and so so they show up, and Frank Shorter was more of an appearance fee, and Bill Rogers and Henry Brown actually raced each other. Um, and what's really cool is last year at the Olympic trials, or the year of last Olympic trials, I got to talk to Frank Shorter after all these years again. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, hanging out with Sebastian, we were talking, I got to meet Sebastian Coe and talk to him. So that's another story. But it's <laughs> so all these lifelong idols, like you get to actually if I finally talked to and so anyway we put on the run tech half marathon it was me Sheila Carmen Ricardo um, Barry Kaufman I think I'm pretty sure Barry was helping I know he ran it but you know we had the Austin Triathlete Club Austin Runners Club they, like they're like three water stops we I remember Mark Mason mm-hmm. we I mean we started we did everything from soup like it was a 24-hour no sleep packets put the started to put the cones out at 2 a.m got through the half marathon um somebody's in a truck behind pulling all the cones well, we, up. not not yet i mean we <laughs> got through the half marathon we were take i was taking frank shore to the airport and i got a call from the city police going why are the cones still on the road oh shoot oh. this was at like noon so <laughs> I, I sheila drove the truck and i ran the half marathon course throwing oh gosh and we had a high side truck so i had to throw the cones up over into the <laughs> you truck ran it. i That's ran awesome. it awesome which probably saved my life for the stress I was under. It probably yeah. saved my life at the time. But <laughs> I was CrossFit before yeah. CrossFit. Was so CrossFit. I was like sore for two weeks as that same repetitive motion that you're not used to for an hour and a half. And so we, I was like, just, I remember being at home that day. We lived down on Manzanilla and I'm like, I'm never putting on a race again because it was such a desperate situation. Because we had mm-hmm. 800 people show up. You know, there was like six of us actually putting it on. I was doing the computer timing as well. <laughs> What kind so of I timing had system you, were you um, using? You had to key everything in. Yeah. I don't remember the. It was like a little Dell computer, but I had nightmares for like thirty years about me <laughs> starting a race, stopping to get coffee, and realizing, oh crap, I got to get to the finish because the fi- I'm the timer. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how those youth fear, yeah. those youth nightmares we had about the last hundred and fifty meters of yeah. tying up. Once you put on a race, it all of a sudden changes. I know <laughs> it's so all of a sudden about other people's experiences yeah, exactly. and not about your experience. <laughs> so I'm sitting there at like four o'clock in the afternoon on the Sunday, and I'm I'm like I'm never doing that again. I'm done. Like maybe track meets, but I'm not doing any more road races. That's crazy. And then the phone rang, and it was a guy named Lyle Klug from Motorola, mm-hmm. and he said we had a bunch of execs run your half marathon and they had such good time. They want to know if you'll put on a marathon with us. And I was like, okay. So it was like, I'd never been in a corporate boardroom before. So I go sit there and, and because I'd been so painful for so, I, they asked me what I needed and I like rattled off 33 committees of everything we had to do. <laughs> and they said, well, how much is this going to cost? And I said, well, it cost me 15 grand to put on the half marathon. So 30 grand to put on a marathon. And I remember, I remember uh, Jim George, who's like the head guy. This was like, so Motorola was flying at the time too. So he's like, well, we want to do it right. <laughs> so we'll, uh, so I got 33 committee chairs as part of their day job, 2,000 volunteers, their entire um, maintenance facilities crew to, and um, $250,000 budget. <laughs> I remember the code was U99 inside Motorola. 
and uh, made me the great race director. And that was the beginning of the Motorola Austin Marathon. And it was the easiest race I ever put on because we had so much help. So I just had to spend time training each committee on what they needed to do right. based on this miserable 24 hours we put in. Which just relieved you of the responsibility yeah. of doing it. And, oh, that, and yeah. their job was to be administrative. Yeah, they did everything. And they had, we had an army. Without, you know, they were rocket scientists putting on a race. It wasn't <laughs> that hard for them. And the facilities group, I mean, they had everything so lined out. It was insane. So that, that's how the Austin Marathon started. And then um, pretty soon, you know, somebody, the, I think, was it Sprint and MCI? They wanted a race. So I took the Runtex Half Marathon and they became the sponsor of that. And then when they went away, 3M came in and now that's the 3M Half Marathon. Really? Yeah. So that's how, that was originally the Runtex Half Marathon. And then it just and it kinda, stayed on that course, or generally that yeah, course. It, it's basically still on that yeah. course. It's just not able to go it's down any as, of those roads it's not anymore. As smooth of a course. We no. Uh, we would just do courses based on how we would run if there was no police control, and we, we came up with great courses like the scenic loop that Gilbert does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what we'd run from Runtex. I mean, my my first half marathon of my life was on that course mm -hmm. and I ran really fast. Yeah. Terry Thornton was an you know, LSU guy from South Africa was in the race and there was somebody else fast in the race who I ended up beating. I can't remember who it was. Um, Mornay Allendale or something like that. I can't remember who it was, but we, that course, when I think about how you ran down Lamar and you, I think at that point I actually went down, it wasn't on 29th street. Cause we were, I remember running down the 29th street, around that area maybe right. it was right around this neck of the woods and the grass was and the road was all asphalt so mm -hmm. it was like really soft cushy and i remember getting to like 10 8 9 10 miles and i'm like i'm not even hurting this course is so, so good fast <laughs> and so amazing i think i ran 104 104 50 and everybody yeah. was like what the hell and i'm like i don't know that i'm actually that fast i just think that that's this course this course is amazing yeah it was, it was like 93 that that I, that i ran that yeah and at that point, you had we had you had the marathon, the half marathon. You were still doing the Congress Avenue Mile, yep. right? It was still going on. You still well, I think at some point in the in the early '90s, the Runtex invite went away because yep. of yeah, I think the politics at UT or something I like that. I think they brought on um, what was the original company they brought on to sell sponsorships. They kind of oh yeah, that's they made, right. I they forget. made it a real deal instead of a yep. buddy deal. That was Delos Dodds's maneuvering yeah. and manip manipulating that. Yeah. It was so, we had a good era there. And then what ha started happening was uh, this, like when we started the marathon, we had, we had a, uh, always had a beneficiary to the races. And uh, the deal I'd offered nonprofits is we'll make sure you don't lose any money because the costs were so low. And if we make any money, you get the money. So mm -hmm. we didn't get a lot of no's. And, but we would, <clears throat> the, the strategy was if we're going to do a race every weekend, let's get good at that. And then, what we can't do every weekend is ask people for money, get volunteers, get the media excited. But these nonprofits have their relationships with all those entities and they can get them excited for their race. Mm -hmm. So we started building through nonprofits and then companies, because board members for nonprofits work for companies and corporations and they would support it. So it just created this culture of support and benefit benefactors. And then within all those nonprofits and companies, people started First year they would help at the event. The next year they would want to run it because we were, our focus is, yeah, we we wanted the fast runners there because that's where our heart and soul was, but we were inclusive, so we wanted everybody to feel important. So we made the experience, whether you're first or last, kind of feel the same. Um, and so we were super inclusive with, 
we never made you feel slow. We made you feel like an endurance athlete. So theoretically, the slower you are, the more of an endurance athlete you are, right? Because right? you're enduring a lot longer. This is fascinating yeah. in terms of you. So how many races were you putting on? You say like every weekend, but like I need to, I need <laughs> to really. Ask us which year. Ask us which year. Was it... <laughs> yeah, we had, I mean, it was. How this... many races were you not? Playing? Like I don't, to my knowledge, we don't have like races every weekend anymore. No, no. we have two or three Everything's changed. We would yeah. two or three. We had significant races. Two or three a weekend. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. Two or three a weekend. I can't even weekend. wrap my, y'all, I can't even wrap my brain around <laughs> but we this. got, it was like, that was mid nineties, early aughts. Super right? alive. And the town is yeah. like a third of the size at that. There was a time. well. The cool thing there was a um, a groupies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then there was uh, cultural specific because of the partnerships with that race itself. So we had the, Were people the same that, runners doing. Well, we'd have the all same the races. We had the people, not everybody, but there was a group of people that would show up to most of our races. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, there, and then there's the people that came just because it was for their nonprofit or it was their like a company. league almost. It was well, that also league, brought, yeah. it also we made those. The distance challenge. Mm-hmm. It also yeah. made all those people who were part of their local communities go out and do the race, which then that got them hooked on racing. So then right. they ran three, four races a year rather than no races a year. And then that's how the community. I mean, I do think that's one of the things that Runtex did so well was not, you had elite athletes on the floor you had you were bringing them in yeah you were sheila was qualified for the world championships in the 3k so we were around that level of elite when i graduated from ut i didn't want to go and i went to arkansas i mean i went to adam state for a little while and then i came back yeah. i'm like no i austin's the place to be. i'm up in alamosa but it's cold and yeah. i got anemic and it's not a great place Super so windy yeah it was crazy how but you also were able to keep all of those everyday runners you know the hobby joggers who people what they call now um, you were able to invest them, get them invested in racing and to see that vision that, and this is what I think I learned from you because one of, when I started Rogue, um, my vision, always, when we started Runtex University and did the first marathon program, the vision was every athlete, every runner is an athlete mm-hmm. if yep. they prepare for an event. And I got that straight from you. That was your attitude and your approach was, hey, if you're gonna get, go from a starting line to a finish line, you're an athlete. Right. There's no difference between you and the person that just won the race, which I think is still filtering into the culture, like in, in the way it's been here since the you know early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, it's, it's, it, that's still something still working its way through. Yeah. Um, you know, even Runner's World, I mean, how many more articles can they write about you're an athlete, but people just don't feel like it. But, right. we, but we made them feel that way right. every day. Because we emulated the model that athletes they train with a group, they have a coach, they, they've got the right gear, they know what they're training for, and they work that through the season. So we'd start people with an event to start, because it's overwhelming to train for a season when you haven't done an event yet. Mm-hmm. So get them to a finish line of the first event, get them the starting line, most important, prepared so it's not some misery. Um, and part of this, when I was um, in high school, I was, uh, you know, the whole idea of being prepared is, one month, freshman year when we were uh, had to do the president's council test or whatever, we had a mild time trial and it was right after lunch. There was no training involved. It was just, okay, let's see what these kids can do, check the box. And we ran a mile and um, I remember throwing up at 200 yards to go. And, but I ran five flat in a town of 20,000 people. My college, my high school coach um, was a four minute miler. So, you know, they, they pestered me for four years to run something farther than a 400. You were a basketball player too, right? Yeah, I played yeah. basketball. It was my passion. I, was, I w- really wanted to play football. 
because that was where my true passion was. But my brother was so good. He was the running back, and my dad was a football college football coach. And But his kidney got hit his senior year, and it punctured. And my mom, that was a sort of big family conflict of, if you, if, if you play football, I'm leaving <laughs> kind of crap. So <laughs> I was like, no, that was another lifetime dream of like, and it kind of ended up when we helped Friday Night Lights show here. I got to suit up and mm. play in a football game on Friday Night Lights. So it all ended well. <laughs> um, but it, she was doing me a huge favor. Sure. Because she kept me from getting hurt. But it sent me into basketball, which prepared me for running. But by the time I was a senior in high school, um, basketball was over. And I, once again, I was calling the coaches. They weren't calling me for college. So, um, okay. But I could tear up a basketball game pretty good because I never got tired. Um, and I could run fast. So my high school coach finally talked me into, he, he just said, Oh, so you're not tough enough to run the 800 and triggered me. So I ran it. And by my third 800, it was a 155, went two, six, two, five, 155, and then made state. And you had to win NorCal's to go to state. Only one person went. Cause in California, there's not a different divisions. So my life just changed trajectory, but I had never, it took me four years. Like if I hadn't had this bad experience as a freshman, I'd been more open to properly training for distances so I was a 17 year old graduate they threw me everyone all the other guys on the team were like well you can run the four but you can't run the eight and I ran the eight no I can't run the mile so they threw me in a four by one relay uh, remember Sheila came and watched she was in Sac State and uh, I ran a 423 first mile ever since my freshman year at five oh, wow. and I threw up for like two hours <laughs> so Sheila's sitting there like watching me he her hurl for like two hours and the track had mountains on it and <laughs> You know, I swear I was going to drop out in the third lap, and then I had my kick at the end and made up for a lot of lost time. And But that next year, I started running distance runs. I never ran a distance run in high school ever. It was the always track workouts or a hill sprint. And then my uh, summer of my – before my freshman year in college, we started going to the park and running distance runs in Bidwell and Chico. And then I ran cross country, and I was, you know, good for that local sandbox. And – relevant on the team I could win occasionally and then that by that spring I was running 351 1500s which is like a 408 whatever so but if I had backed that up a year and started mm. training properly as a junior and running 408 as a senior that's a whole different game as far as college recruitment so my passion like with our training program now is get them in time to have that junior year sophomore junior year of training so they can re realize their potential before college you know so that that kind of drove that but um, so that whole properly, you know, preparing, I kind of lived through it. So you don't want to have people go run a 5K that they haven't trained for. So that's how we, if we're going to get a company excited about a 5K, you didn't want them to just show up and be miserable. So we'd back it up six, what, nine, uh, three months. We'd back it up and say, we want a three month training program for your, so that's where Runtex U would go out and train people on site. My, oh, wow. That's the basic cool. theory was people aren't going to go home and do a program initially but they'll be happy to get out of their cubicle at work for an hour right so we made the we asked the company to let us coach them at work during the day they don't have to give you know give in to their they're not going to get a babysitter to go for their first distance program right. right so we just took it to work and made it convenient and who doesn't want to get out of the office and so that got going so people were prepared for the race that they showed up to and then it was a positive experience and then they would get into it and then so that was our methodology. Well, you work. also got guys who and girls who were working on your shoe floor really excited about coaching because then yep. they went and did those. 
even before yeah. that, you used to do these. Every single store had a show and go workout where in that afternoon or evening, you would one of the one you I did this for years where whatever store you were at, people would show up about 530 and you would just yeah. walk out the back out the door and yeah. go warm up to go do some workout and we would always you gave all your employees the opportunity to do whatever workouts they wanted to yeah, and, you want to tell them what to do yeah. and everybody just did crazy stuff yeah. <laughs> with how you learn like yeah, yeah everybody yeah, you yeah. learned what worked Still what didn't now, work like, people yeah. people that want my help coaching like i'm gonna try to help you how to think about coaching i'm not gonna prescribe workouts because yeah. I don't know till I see who I'm coaching, what I'm going to do. So how can I tell you what to do? And I haven't even seen your kids or you're, you got to learn how to coach. Have you ever written a program? Cause <laughs> almost, all, I don't know that you ever, I've, I've recorded what we've done. <laughs> yes. Occasionally. Right. And after, then if someone, the fact. yeah. And I, what's weird is with, uh, right now with our virtual born to run, I just take what we do with the kids and then I put it on this final surge app, which mm -hmm. kind of puts it out there. And, I had more kids make state from other towns following that than the ones in town last year. Wow, it's crazy. It's weird. So I, I used to think it was me being there. It has nothing to yeah. do with me being there. <laughs> what it is is we create patterns for people because if you if you do a continuous run, you're limited in your for racing, like you're learning how to run. There's nothing wrong with going for a run. But if you're training for a specific goal and you have a competitive I mean, there's things you have to do so you can be able to sustain that when it's time. So that's all patterning. And because of my inability to do a sustained run without being miserable i figured out how to break it up into mm. pieces but keep it moving and so my own personal you also trust your intuition a lot of ways you know the, yeah. the only other coach i've ever met who coaches the way you do was bev kearney and because she knew her system so well she never wrote it down nobody knew what they had she just knew yeah. it's like she was licking her finger putting it in the air and saying smells like x today yeah. but it always was the right thing yeah. and i remember when i was working with her I, every other distance coach who I worked with, like, how can you work with her? And I'm like, it's like working with Paul. Like it's exactly the same methodology and you know, your systems, you know what people do and you're dealing with the individual athlete in the moment. Once you learn how to do that, you don't ever go back to static stretch schedules. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm getting put in a box when people want to know even what we're doing tomorrow. I'm like, yeah. You gotta just show up. We'll yep. figure it out. <laughs> it's been that way since the it's been yeah, that way yeah. since I got there in 91. That's exact. I mean, I would go run with you guys every time I wasn't doing a UT workout, I would go do workouts with you. And I was a, you know, at that time I was a four, let's say I was a 14, 10, 5k guy. And Which is I couldn't like stay a 13, up 45 now. Yeah. I couldn't stay up with Sheila. I yeah. couldn't stay up with Sheila on the, on the runs from the warm up to the track. I mean, she was so fast. She would, she would drop us sometimes and she would wonder why we were being slackers and yeah. she, which she would never say to your face, but you felt it. Yeah. <laughs> you felt it for sure. Yeah. Look, was, so everything at run text really changed as I, as I hear in the, the lore or in 19 in 1991 with a pretty catastrophic situation that happened with this, this Creek that's running literally right beside us yeah. right now, mm -hmm. poured tons of water into a window. Um, that's how I was introduced to Runtex because I was a I was working on I was I think I'd been to your shop a few times, but we got free gear from Adidas and everything else, so we weren't ever down there. Yeah. And um, you put out an APB yeah. to all the people, whoever it was, saying, "Hey, I need help." Anybody that comes down here, it went to UT athletes first. Like anybody who comes down here can get a free pair of shoes. I'll yeah. give you a free pair of shoes if you help me. Yeah. And we were, so there was a huge flood and all the water was pouring into the store and the shoes were floating. They were out of their boxes, Whoa. floating around in a, I mean, the water was above your, uh, at your neck or above. We went down into a, into a, like a basement 
pulled all these shoes out, pled them all out on the floor. <laughs> Paul was, we were tying, finding their pairs, tying them together and putting them over the rack. We took all the clothes off the racks and yeah. just put all the shoes on racks and then set them out. And Paul got, the, got a, you got the local, the local radio, uh, TV station to come down, local radio station to come down. What kind of story is that? Like these guys are selling shoes, all shoes have price yeah. and everybody was there. It was, and I, I was on the floor that day and I'm like, this is what I want to do forever. <laughs> this crazy. is so fucking cool. <laughs> These I people are cool. Over. It was yeah. just beginning. Yeah. It was crazy. So weird. I've had that so many times in my world. It's like we were, uh, and we should have never, should have never had the shoe stored in the basement anyway. It was on the riverbed, like, <laughs> but it, you know, at the end of a drought, <laughs> you know, you know droughts end pretty rough. <laughs> droughts end pretty rough, but the rent was so cheap. 750, dollars a month for 1500 square feet it's crazy half of it was in the basement where mm -hmm. so there was no flood insurance because it was yeah. in the flood zone like who's going to insure an, <laughs> oh just when not I was if ask, like so i but I, we had again like um in my initial startup of runtex i set myself behind the eight ball on payables from day one and so we were like literally um i, I think the number was a hundred ten thousand dollars in payables that was all 60 to 90 days and uh, due and about that much inventory wholesale. And so I guess God heard my prayers because we, <laughs> we literally in one week turned our entire inventory at wholesale and paid all of our um, payables and then started over fresh. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, so I, but I mean, we were, and everybody knew where you were. Yeah. Everybody in it town was, knew yeah, you were. KX, Jim Swift with KXN was, I remember like it was yesterday we were in the, Cause there's this thing that that was literally divine intervention. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping it was, um, we'll see. That means, right? that means I'm connected to God. <laughs> the, the, uh, Jim Swift, who was on the, on the porch guy for years. He's great. Yeah. I'm, I can see him like it was yesterday. Cause yeah. when you have a huge shot of adrenaline, it cements a memory for life. So that's kind of one thing I, um, had realized that you know, we were, we were creating great memories for runners because this was this finish line they'd never been to before. So this huge shot of adrenaline made us part of their long-term memories. So these, the other thing that can do that is, you know, terrific, horrific stuff. So you don't want to, you want to stay away from producing that for people. <laughs> but so Jim Smith down there and the camera's on, I can see the light, like kind of like these in the camera. And he's like, so what are you going to do? And I said, we're going to hose them off and sell them cheap. And 12th and the Mar historically for Austin is where all the news stations go cover the flooding in Austin because there's a bridge that goes right over it yeah super easy to see yeah. and yeah. so um we just I remember everyone dove in and as it was happening we knew it was becoming a problem because the river was rising it rained like kind of like today for like four days straight mm -hmm. and then uh so we started pulling the the you know we started pulling the shoes up and it was a bunch of stairs so we were like I felt <laughs> like I wrestled before I played basketball and it was like that desperate feeling of a wrestling match where you can't let go but this you you're rigged up anymore yeah you're yeah. rigor mortis but you have to <laughs> yeah, keep going you have to keep going up the steps with as many <laughs> shoes as you can and and then the luckily the light the electrical they, whoever did the electrical sockets did it above the window so we had this time because the windows were a normal height so we had till the water got to about here and then we had to bail and all of a sudden you hear the, you hear the, uh, first the water came up out of the toilet and then you heard the window break and then we were all like out. At mm -hmm. least we had been electrocuted, I think. But then you just turn back and the water just went boom to the, on the first floor, the sec the ground floor, the water was to that. And then shoes just started percolating up. 
And so we had to get the river soot off of it. And um, so that was kind of a, again, I thought it was the end of the brand, uh, the experience, and it was just the beginning. I think we went from being a, that was in 91. I mean, it, it doubled our sales after that because people were more aware of us. Yeah. And w within about a year or so, we moved across the street, right? Yeah. To the. It's also in the flood zone. That's yeah. how smart I was. Yeah. But a little less. <laughs> but a little less. I don't think we ever got. Did you ever get flooded out there? I don't. Not uh, when I was there. Yeah. yeah. I lived in that store. Yeah. I lived in that store for like a year in the back mm -hmm. of it. It was nice having someone there all night. Well, it was after we got broken into that yeah. one time. Remember we stopped, somebody? We stopped selling Jordans and never got broken into again. Yeah. We had that big Jordan <laughs> sign that was up and then somebody broke in. And then I was like, I'll stay here if you want. I could use some, I could use free rent. <laughs> some red abatement. You was literally awesome. stayed there? You lived there. I lived there twice. I lived, I lived at that store. And then I lived over when we moved to 12th and when we moved to Riverside. South First and Riverside, I was the first person to live there. And then you had everybody living there. I think Sammy Umberhagen <laughs> lived there. there the your, yeah. your, 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 your niece lived the there. Sheila's setting. sister lived there for a while. With yeah. uh, they, I mean, there were, you had a, it was a bedroom. It was crazy. Like yeah, it was, there was nice. it was yeah. It was that is that was. I think the work live experience, especially in the retail, when you're you want to be with your family and it's an all day experience, but you don't want to be like. like that's when it became tougher. Was when um, your family wasn't there all day, so now you're deciding whether you're with like when everyone's mm -hmm. in the same environment. But they can go to a quiet place and not have to be at work. But I, you know, I can go back yeah. and forth. That was perfect. Yeah. Well, it's just yeah. like when back in the day when people had their retail shops and lived above yeah. them. So that's a great it's idea. It's the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So except the showers were really in demand. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They were not. We the, Sheila had, would go in there yeah. every day. Sheila was Sheila. It probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's not. A, I'm sure it's not a former, but it was a literally clean freak. Yeah. It would do clean that shower every single every time you'd walk she, in there. I, she'd be in there cl scrubbing it down, I cleaning say it she up. She can hear dirt. Yeah, <laughs> so <Yeah>. true. <laughs> So, Paul, I want to give our listeners a little bit of perspective. Those who are, we've got a lot of people listening who aren't in Texas and may not recognize, um, not may, may probably know about Runtex, but probably don't know exactly the reach of it. But if you could just kind of go through some of the, uh, like, really, some of the core people, people who are core to, to Runtex, were core to Runtex, who the world knows. Like, you already mentioned George Bush, but right. I'll never forget one, the very first day, one day I was working on the floor in this, Two men come up in suits, black suits, right? And a woman walks in with this bouffant hairdo, mm -hmm. white bouffant hairdo. She's like five foot four. And I'm like, look twice. It looks like a grandmother. And it was Ann Richards, who was yeah. the governor of the state. And she walked in and she came up to me. Ann Richards had, had this unbelievable sense of humor. And she just said to me, I need some help, young man, or something like that. I was like, sure, I can help you. I was like, you know, I'm a fast runner. I'm cool. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but I, what I really need help is I need help with sports bras. They could be called jog bra at the yeah. time. And I'm like, Oh, I, <laughs> I, I cannot help the governor of the state of Texas with a pair. And she was well endowed. And she's like, well, what do you, and she would make me, she made me go around. I'll never forget this. She made me walk around and like, she put them on and she'd come out, she'd jump up and down. So what do you think of this? And I'm looking at the, they're not secret service, but like the state of Texas yeah. had its own version yeah. of that. They were like, I don't know. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, she was the coolest person. Yeah, first time I've heard this story. Oh, that story is so <laughs> great. She was, but she was great. She who, was great. So you also had, you know, we, we mentioned George Bush, but there's a bunch of other. We had, we had a lot of fun with Willie Nelson. Yes. We had some great. The Willie Nelson 10K. That was, was epic. Yes. Yeah, that was epic. We had um, probably one of the better stories from the Red Tech area. There was a guy named Ralph that um, 
He was the guy that had the flower shop at Six of the Mar. Where oh, yeah. I guess it's on the corner now where the Waterloo is, mm-hmm. I think. But we had moved up onto Ninth Street right above there. And uh, this guy, Ralph, was our neighbor. He lived in an apartment complex next to our house. And at the time, I, th- I was doing Runner's World Shoe Review, so I was going to direct connect with the industry. And um, he, he came up to me and he said, Hey, Willie Nelson, because he was, I think, the guy that rolled Willie Nelson's um, joints. joints. Um, <laughs> he had a joint roller? Yeah. it's awesome. <laughs> So he uh, he was like Willie loves the New Balance 496, and he can't get it anymore. And uh, it's like, can you? He's a nine and a half. Can you think you can get uh, find some from New Balance? So I called Tim Barr up at New Balance, who was head of production, and I uh, explained it to him. Like, you know, I think Willie Nelson gets paid like a million dollars to wear people's stuff. Can we just get him a pair of 496s? And so they were on to the 497s or 498s by then. But he said, let me see what I can do. So about, you know, this is all on, you know, you go about your life. And I'm like, two months later, a box arrives and it's got 12 pair of 496s for Willie. Each one of them customized. Oh, like, wow. On oh, the road again. That's so um, badass. His guitar trigger. <laughs> yes. And so I was pretty excited. So I gave, uh, I told, I was, couldn't, I was like a kid. I couldn't wait to give him to Ralph because I was, and I'd given Willie Nelson his first tour at Barton Creek Country Club back in the 80s when I worked there. But you know, I was the guy that gave him to her. Um, and uh, so I was like, this is going to be cool. And uh, so I give him to Ralph and Ralph's like, great, thanks. And then I, that was it. He took him and gave him to Willie. And I'm like, okay. My, Maybe my, I should have built the parcel There's my magic those out. moment. Next time I'm going to have some, you know, I've got the shoes, arrange a meeting with Willie and I'll take him to him. Right. But I just said, here. So he gets to be the guy. So another month goes by and all of a sudden my phone rings from an unknown number and I pick it up and it was like, I remember, like he's like, Paul. I'm like, yeah. He goes, this is Willie Nelson. <laughs> he goes, I've been trying to get New Balance to make me shoes for 30 years, and I get a box of 12 from you. He goes, I want to meet you. Wow. And so we went out to Luck, Texas, where he was, and you know, we spent some time together. And at at the end of the, he had this bar called you know Luck, Texas, and where his headquarters was, and it was Pooties or something. Yeah, what was it? yeah, something like that. Yeah. And he. uh I said to him, I go, I'd love to put on a uh, 10K, for, you know, Willie Nelson 10K for Farm Aid. And he looks at me, he goes, let's do it. And he goes, we'll sneak up on him and rob another bank. Like, so, <laughs> so, and then he's like, and, that, and he gave me his number. And then it was like, he shook my hand and I drove off. I'm like, he just agreed to it. Now what? You know, so I started pestering him for like, I don't know how long. He kept saying, sure, yeah, sure, yeah. And then... So we put the whole thing together and we're getting ready to announce it. This is right before 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it was in August. Remember, yeah. Run Texas mm-hmm. Air Conditioning was out. We had a press conference with Willie. It was like 100 <laughs> degrees. And I'm driving down Mopac and uh, I get this call. This is so-and-so from Mark Rothbaum's office, Willie Nelson's agent or manager. He goes... Willie says he's coming to your place today. He goes, she goes, what's this all about? I'm like, oh, shit. Because all the TV stations were promised to be there, and they were getting ready to call it off, it sounded like. And uh, I'm like, well, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, uh, hang on a second. And from, they're from Connecticut or something, so they, they sound not ha- not nice compared to Texas sound. <laughs> and uh, I'm just, like, seeing my life flash before my eyes. <laughs> 
And he'd come back on and she goes, oh, I talked to Mark Rothbaum and he buys all his shoes at Rentex. Willie will be there. <laughs> yeah. My Saved heart started again. beating again. Saved again. <laughs> and so we rolled in. Willie stayed for how long? Like four or five hours yeah. and signed everybody's autograph. And mm-hmm. then... 9-11 happened and uh well he ran the race too it was yeah, a hot yeah, day we, yeah. remember there was an after evening yeah. race and then he played that he played did he play that night or he had yeah, you right. had a big bland that yeah, he you had played. a bunch of, yeah he played, but we but this was 9-11 happened and this was october six weeks later the first public like everyone was shuttered basically yes waiting for it to happen again this was the first community event after 9-11 mm. willie nelson but you know he was magical perfect night after wow. he played that morning, we ran that morning, right? It was yeah. an afternoon run. What was the route for the Oh, jeez. It went, it went it was south. It did go south. It, it went, went up. South. I remember it was so hard. It went yeah. up First Street. Yeah. yeah. It was such a good event, though. <laughs> and then I you remember. just came back. You came back. I think you went down Fifth. I think you went down Dawson Fifth, which is crazy to think about now. You could do what you could do. We, we, got, we had so much fun because we would just tell the police where we needed them and. They would, I mean, it was so easy. It was so awesome. It was the yeah. hardest work. That was the most fun and hardest work weekend of my life. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think we stopped working. Our shoot, our it floor was, was crazy. We were busier than ever. Yeah. We were working. Everybody was putting on event, trying to set stuff up. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. There would be, there would be a dozen people working the shoe floor. Like, and you know, for the Willie event for sure, but this is a standard Saturday. There'd be a dozen people working the shoe floor. Each person would have three or four customers and they, they had these blocks and so each block <laughs> four people it's triage like and ER, it, was, like an it was and it was like that from from bell to i think there were eight so blessed i worked at runtex for 11 years with a little break in there and the difference between the early 90s and what happened from 97 on with 97 on it was it, every Saturday was you were bleeding out of your ears. You're helping three, four customers at a time. Yeah. I remember Gundy. We were just talking about Chris Gunderson. He could only help one person at a time. <laughs> they, they they got the best service ever because he was the best salesman you had. He was the best salesman you had because he because he was the only dude who gave a shit. Yeah. Nobody else really in the gave ICU. a shit. He was on yeah. the yeah. <laughs> exactly. But he would only work one guy at a time. And you know, John and I are we're, we're juggling three, four people. People are grumpy at you, and you look over at Gundy and everybody's those two people are smiling and you're like god this is terrible Paul would would order like 15 pizzas for us for lunch and it would get delivered and be back in the in the warehouse actually Paul didn't Paul didn't do that Paul Perone or somebody would do it maybe you had started getting the shoe companies to come and remember Paul Paul Perone one year Paul Perone gave us a spiff on Saturday so if you sold a pair of his shoes Mizuno he'd give you a dollar for every shoe that you sold we were better didn't (laughs) we had we had no every we had your size for every shoe there people were like every shoe baron back then had its unique foot too. Yeah. It wasn't yes. homogenous like like now no. it's like everyone's figured out the last. Back then it was like you knew you'd see a person's foot and you knew how to sell a shoe quick because totally. you'd bring one that you knew would work with two that you knew wouldn't. Right. Yeah, once you it knew a last, yeah. once you knew it was like these okay. are gonna feel bad, this is gonna feel good. They're You're gonna love these. And, we would, and you <laughs> learned how to do them. it. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was authentic because it was the best choice for them. But we, yep. if you brought three that were almost the same, then you could be there forever. And I knew if he. If the first shoe I put on him wasn't the right one, I might be there all day. Yes. Because, yes. Well, especially the, you, because you knew yeah, the, you knew more than anybody. I mean, I mean, you had this intuitive sense to it, too. You think some of that is just, what do you think that, I mean, thinking about you as a shoe 
genius because that's what I, I mean, I was on a shoe floor for, I mean, I was, I've been dealing with shoes since I was a little kid and I couldn't even there after 15, 10 years of just schlepping and doing everything I could, you would walk in and get the right shoe for the right person almost every single time, every single time. John, you were kind of the same way that way. You guys had a skill set that I I did not have. You know what? It was, I think it was easier to do it then because each company had a specific shape and a feel. Yeah. You could close your eyes and put on a shoe and tell what brand it was from. And so if you, you would recognize patterns, shapes of foot, uh, kinematics, the whole thing and then you go oh that's an adidas foot or, yeah you know and you can't do that now so i wouldn't have the confidence to do it mm. now for sure yeah it was more it was easier then i i i do know like uh i had, remember donald patrick he was mm-hmm. a yep. neurosurgeon and mm-hmm. he, he had articulated that he he could see three-dimensionally in motion and like i had that same ability like i could see someone's foot in my mind i could see it in like in the shoe, the shape of the foot in the shoe on in motion based on their body type, like whether they're going to heel strike first, midfoot strike, you know, you could just, I could just see it happening in my head in an instant. And then I would sort it really quick. And that's, and we were under so much pressure and we are also, you know, there was so much focus cause we had to get it right. Cause if he didn't get it right, we were guaranteeing their fit. Cause I wanted them to believe in us enough that we had to guarantee the fit. If we got it wrong, we'd replace it wasn't going to be a hassle. We, right. we got it wrong here. We want you to believe that we can get it right. Right. Somewhere right. around 95 or so, you were also then got really into trying to bake your own shoes. Yeah. We were, you would buy, you bought sheets of EVA, mm-hmm. put them, this was, in, and this was in the polyurethane era when everyone right. was, everybody wanted the polyurethane, but you were like, no, 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 polyurethane's too heavy. You want, you want, and then you would just cut it and then you would mold them to people's yeah, feet. Yeah, figured out like, uh, at the end of the day, um, Shoes were being built. The heritage of shoes came from uh, last that were based on um, dress shoes where you're standing. And there wasn't motion involved. There was just walking at best. So that's where shoes started. New Balance especially, like they were a dress shoe last that became a running shoe. So it worked for people that are kind of walking. And uh, But you had to have a performance last to be able to run in something. But as EVA, like early days of shoes, um, the last wasn't important as important because EVA was just sheet cut open-celled and your foot would win the battle against the shoe mm-hmm. and then compression molded eva came in and all of a sudden it's creating framework that would win over your foot and so the shape got more specific it's like sitting on a hard bench that has a nice bevel is comfortable but a hard bench is super flat hits your bones and your butt and your right right you want so shoes became very firm even the eva because it was compression molded so take a big piece of EVA and make it this big and, and the ends were heat sealed. So now the edges when you land are influencing you like a lever accelerator, whereas the old sheet cut, you would just compress it. It just collapsed. And so then, but and then bases were narrow as sheet cut. So you could see the evolution. And so now the foot was being held and you had to run around the shoe and it, it was affecting everything. So we, I remember we'd go to UT with our training group and running over there everyone you'd be in a pack and you could just see all shapes and sizes and relationships with footwear and how they were running and then we get over there and cool down barefoot on the grass and everyone looked beautiful and mm-hmm. nice tip you know nice little free good tempo mm-hmm. not overstriding not heel striking it was just so the shoe was negatively influencing you so i started looking at um i would take the foot and i, I always wanted to like I think I was, uh, I always wanted to get up on my toes. I felt like 
that was the ultimate was to be on your toes pushing off and so i would i would put a sock on wrap that athletic tape my foot in that position and then cut it off and look at it and it became like a, what a lash should really look like and then so what i started doing was taking having someone's i did it to myself first and they were the best shoes i ever made i take a, a normal upper strip the outer sole off and then i would take one layer of eva and put my foot in that equine position where you're powering off uh, and so I, was, I found where the foots were the, and I started graphing people's feet and I know there's like 10 measurements that differentiate the, each other's feet and so you could categorize them and so like the ball of my foot and my hands do the same thing when I do this the ball of my foot is here the outside of my foot's lifted so that but that's where my knee's straight and so if I get in shoes that are too thick here it drops me down and my knee goes out and now I've lost my power and now I'm being negatively influenced. Right. So when I when I use my foot as the mold, I would um, I would glue up the sock and then one sheet of EVA in the shape my foot needs to be in, and then I would keep doing that to, to like three or four layers, and then I would take it to the grinder and make it uh, bring in the edges where they could be, make it, and then I would run on it without an outer sole till the phone till, and you could like you know when the dentist says you do this mm -hmm. looks at the red. To see, yeah. so I would just run till there was, it was all even. So I created this interface between the ground and my foot that was a perfect match, and then I would put inner tube rubber as the outsole because we're running on the roads, right. like a drag car, and it was the best shoe ever. I had like three thousand miles on them. Um, so that and whole, you and then everybody in the store you yeah, taught you taught everybody how to do well you didn't teach us the measurements you just kind of left you said it was Paraphrase you gave open per, you gave open permission for anybody to use it as yeah. long as you were able to use it when you needed to you know who I remember went crazy with this was Robert Espinoza uh -huh. he would make he was so interested in yeah. making those shoes all the time and I, I think he had like six pairs of them yeah. it's like you don't need any more Robert maybe make them for somebody else like, yeah. so I started going like what I found was the uh, more pliable the foot, the more positive impact it had on the runner. Because so you, there's two basic extremes. There's the rigid foot, and then there's the hypermobile. The hypermobile is completely influenced by the shoe, but really good at shock absorbing. But the platform has to be just right, or it's going to throw the chain above it. Where the horse's hoof foot just really doesn't have mobility, so you just need to cushion it from the road. So all the stuff I was doing for that foot didn't have as much positive impact as they just needed cushioning. It didn't have to be perfect. Like slope is always important, but slope is relationship with geometry and density and how, how much you, like how much foam you put in the block, how much you heat it up. Like all these things were affecting it. So you see this and we were always going back to the shoe companies and they was, they were visiting us. So, I mean, we didn't have to go to them. That's where I was going to go next yeah. is like you, you then became more, you be, then became a go-to where all of the main shoe designers were coming to Runtex. And I remember they would walk in and I'd be like, what are they doing here? Yeah. I thought they were the ones like I, I'm wearing their shoes and they're here figuring, talking to Paul. Then you, you really, I mean, I think that's to me, one of the things that's a lot of people miss about the run tech story is how big an influence you also had all the way up the chain, you know, all the way up to each of those big shoes. I mean, some of the shoe designers who we've talked about a few times are, they were influenced heavily by what we were doing yeah. there. Yeah, um, it was a magic era. Well, Runners, the years. Runner's World Shoe Guide at the time was was the Bible. 
Yeah, it was because it wasn't. There was nothing. Wasn't there online was, yet. There was no internet. There were no shoe reviewers, and so you we, waited for the shoe review. We would make All, or break shoes. Yeah, and, and my deal was not to Mizuno. Like you. Oh created, yeah. Yeah. I remember when Mizuno first came in, they had put the wave in the yeah. mm-hmm. shoe, but they had it a solid block in the heel, and I'm like, why did you put the wave in there if the foam is solid? Like. <laughs> You got to dig out underneath the wave to give some some place for it's like your dispersal exposed airbag kind right. of thing because that they almost tried to compete with Nike with A6 head gel and they so still they, got gel yeah so they <laughs> took so they they pulled it out you mm-hmm. know Chris Brewer was I think the main guy mm-hmm. then um, he's so they carved it out and it created this drop and then the rest was history and then they then you could fine tune that for asymmetry you could you know you could you had a system yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it was fun. Then we they were, softened we were, that wave. Remember how they made that? It was really, yeah. really firm at first, and yeah. then they softened it to where it was just barely holding it. They were they had some shoes there though those years that I just loved. There, yeah. They and they had the minimal. They were trying. They even though they had a technology in there, they were still trying to be as minimal as possible. Yeah, yeah. And they fit a, a, a lot of, of feet. Yeah. yeah, they fit a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah. so you could start figuring out if it's a high end step foot American brand, if it's a low end step foot Japanese brand. Mm-hmm. Germany, Adidas was kind of in the middle. It was the Adidas. I mean, Adidas had a nice run for a while too. They were, they had their own great eras. Yeah. Um, I wish they would bring. I wish. I cannot believe they won't make a gazelle running shoe or a country running shoe. <laughs> be, if they could bring That'd back the awesome. country, it'd be so cool. That'd be awesome. They're leaving that franchise alone. I guess it's so. Country is like I don't know where it went. I know gazelles. That's the originals. People won't let it come back as a running shoe. I already have already asked a hundred times. Mm, it's sad. Yeah, but. Nike's not doing that either. Like, there's not that they'll they're bringing back. You know, the, it's crazy to see the Air Max, all the Air Maxes that are back in that style. That red, yeah. that first original Air Max that they had. Mm-hmm. There now, all the cool kids are wearing them. They're buying them and oh, you go just kicking kick. it in the domain, and it's like everybody, everybody's wearing that shoe. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the shoe review back then, it was like it would show up in the mailbox, and you or we got the issues at the store before yeah. everybody else, mm-hmm. so we could be prepared because as soon as it dropped or everybody's arrived in the My mailbox, deal, yeah. the store was flooded <laughs> with people. So it was a little bit like fish in a stock and pond. They, and we, they would be, they'd, I need to try this yeah. shoe, and they'd it argue was with us. Crazy. Like, that's what we wrote, not what we meant. Because <laughs> I would, I mean, I. I've yet to become a writer, but Wish was insanely good at writing. So mm-hmm. I would literally, we'd have a three-day dissertation on go through all the shoes, and sometimes I wouldn't read the runner. I, would, I never saw. I never took the time to read. What, I just talked, and he'd agree, disagree, or whatever. And then he was doing all the writing, and it would come out. And he he was masterful at it. That's well, he, why he moved here. Like we were. Yeah, running, he yeah. would. He lived. Was he in Pennsylvania? Yeah, he was around. He, he was in Emmaus. Like, yeah three days and they would, just, they would huddle yep and then every leave. shoe that's unreal yeah and she, we were getting two what's the irony of the shoe business is we were getting two thousand shoes every three months or every six months to test so we were just flooding the market with shoes and that's when our sales were at the highest i always said <laughs> i'm glad we're not in the underwear business because no one knows you got new underwear right but in the shoe business you go back with new shoes and everyone's like oh new shoes where'd you get those you know i'm a tester runner so he created this like buzz around coming to get new shoes because your buddy's got new shoes so when we were giving away two thousand shoes we were had our peak sales and 
and we were our average foot price was like 80 bucks mm -hmm. we would have been doing 20 million if yeah. under current pricing and we were getting them shoot up <laughs> and then they would have to stand in line for 30 45 <laughs> minutes we Check. had three <laughs> registers rolling <laughs> sheila behind the registers like everybody got a discount too you remember that like yeah. no one did you we had a shoe trade-in yeah. policy yeah. you brought us shoes you get ten dollars off and it did people would go oh i forgot my shoes she was like i already gave you the you don't even ask i just gave you ten dollars <laughs> everybody got ten dollars no, no like, matter what we had an old industry people were creating an industry off coming to get our trade-in shoes yep. saying they were giving them away and selling them so yes <laughs> so it was like pulling people out of poverty yes <laughs> i remember the only time i really got furious was i had a we had a guy that we were at 12th of lamar Climbed our fence to steal shoes he could have got for free. He's the only oh. guy I ever chased down. Like, like, come on, he man. He just stole free You just shoes. had to ask for them. <laughs> yes. So yeah. it's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> well, Paul, Paul, we've just scraped the surface here, and we would love to have you come back for at least one other one of these love conversations. Yeah. If you, I'd love to cover a little bit more on on the your experience as an athlete, your experience as coaching Sheila, and Sheila's experience as an athlete, cool. and then also your you, you know, following now that your son is one of the premier distance runners in the NCAA, soon to be one of the premier distance runners in America, in my opinion. You. And you're part of that whole history to hear. We talk a lot on this podcast about training theory. Your training theory oh, is so that, unique yeah. and, and, and we, we, this is something we would just love to have you back on for to go okay. that direction. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll tap a little bit more at what the run takes years, but I also think there's another whole direction, which is, which I think we can say for maybe perhaps a, another conversation if we can, which is just what you've seen in Austin as the scene, because you were here at the start of it and we're, we're really influential, the creator of it, but like where you see it now, because that's one of the things we keep talking about in this podcast is what we talked about it in an episode where we talked about, is there a home base? Like mm -hmm. what is a home base and what does that look like? We'd just love to maybe separately get a conversation in on that. So if you, we would love, love to, to have you back, if you'd be back of and course. I know our listeners will be totally happy about this. Yeah, conversation. This has been absolutely fascinating. I, this one was just yeah, next so level. awesome for me. I'm kind of, kind of blown away by the whole thing. Dude, yeah, I don't it, think it paints you, a whole new picture only, of like where I'm running. And, and, and that's what y'all keep saying. And then, we have a conversation like this and it's like, oh, wow. I mean, the what's thing weird, is, weird this is, is on that, another level. What, what's weird is people talk about the past, present, and future is all happening all at once. Mm. Yeah. And this is an example of like going down memory lane. It's like the past, when we talk about it, it's still happening because it happened. Right. We're here right now, but I'm also, we're also worried thinking about the future. Mm. I tell my kids all the time, like there's only two things that matter now is now and the future. Yeah. And so your now is building your future. The, so that's right. all we got, but right. it's so fun to go down memory lane because we were, I mean, we had such a good team. Like, I think if anything, I'm more of a talent scout than anything. Is just knowing. I've when said you that. See, see great people, and I've and said that, that for yeah. years. The best that we had, we, the people we had doing what we were doing, we were also we were also passionate about what we were doing. Even the guy who was marketing, once you started separating yeah. your, your, your silos, which you finally had to, because it just was yeah, required. It was it's also, it's also yeah. like the worst thing to have happen, but the, a necessary thing. But even those people, you know, I think Clayton Bullock, who, who he had no business running. The guy couldn't run, but he ran and then he was our marketer and it yeah. worked yeah. because he was so passionate and so excited and so felt your, and then the people you put in place, we were all so we, we helped each other so much and we could, 
we could party too. <laughs> not gonna well, we lie. To because not- <laughs> we were working all the time. Yeah. But we were on a mission more I mean it was mission yeah. based work. It was It was mission based never, work. I didn't like to silo people. I didn't want to have like I want everybody to have a chance to and that's kind of what we, we kinda of talk about maybe when when I spun everything out to get everybody in charge of their own world because the basic idea was take everyone who was all in on one department and it, um, I, I wanted to go like let those people free up and drive their own world because they were already all in on it and they should own it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that kind of people, that was kind of a whole nother era of, of figuring that out. So I thought when I look back at that, I really feel good that I was right about the people that ended up taking it and taking it to new levels. I mean, everybody here, I mean, Scott Hippenstale, Although he didn't work at Runtex, he was at Runtex all the time. Yeah. <laughs> he was a local coach, yeah. high school coach at a at a town in Lockhart, created a dynasty at Lockhart, Lockhart when he was there. And all summer long, he was working the floor. But yeah. really, he would just be sitting behind the register, right. shooting the shit, getting the ideas from all the UT guys, what they were doing and how they were doing it. And he was is, yeah. he was a super fast runner. I mean, and then you That's had what, yeah, the whole <laughs> idea, of like the kids coming out of UT now, like I'm just dying to have a place for them to yeah. to pause before they get on with life mm-hmm. is like how do you, how do you make it to the next olympic trials and be supported before you have to be in before the belly to, of the beast yeah yes because that's so, what Runtex did for me yeah. i mean i didn't i ended up not making it all the way because just life right like things happen but i did have that chance for four or five years after i got yeah. out of college to try to do it and it, and, I, and I think you need your work your way through. So yes, you if do. I get to my like next vision is like helping people start their career, sustain their running career and not have it be like a hurdle race. It's like flowing together mm-hmm. and figure out, try to figure out your passion that you can make a profession while you're still competing. Cause you, you don't want your mind space to be just wrapped up at this race moment all the time. It's so unhealthy. Yeah. So we were at our best in everything when we had everything going on because you had to be in the moment, but you didn't live in the moment once it was over. You were on to the next moment. But when you got back to that moment, you were hitting it again. You know, so we, we you were think so... about it, like the, the, that's not what goes on at the collegiate level either. You know, they're all prepping and waiting for that one. You know, you see those teams. I don't know how they do it. Like they, they, they just, it's what Jerry does too. Like with, you know, like they race three times a year or something like that. I, yeah. I could never have done that. I was so thankful for being at run test. It was a race every week. Every, every workout was a race when I ran yeah. with you guys because yeah. everybody was showing up and I was the fast guy at the time. So everybody was coming after me. Yeah. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah, it, it we so had much so fun. much fun. Yeah. And you, yeah, yeah. we could keep, we'll keep yeah, going. We'll, I'm we'll sure. Oh, it's fabulous. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you so Paul. much for the opportunity. Thank you for the inspiration. Yeah. This has been well, super you, inspiring for me. And to hang out with Shrup again is always good. Oh yeah. Yep, That's we agree. Like, we agree. <laughs> Can you believe we are the old guys now? How'd that happen? <laughs> I don't know. I don't feel very old. Do you guys feel old? No, I'm still a five-year-old kid worried about everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same way I am. I think John might be a little older. I feel older. <laughs> <laughs>